whether you agree with Augustine or not, there are these apologetic-type issues that have to be dealt with, and they seem to, to be pretty typical about the, the way most people come to faith. And if it's not, some of these issues still come up post-Christian. Thank you for joining us for Straight Thinking, a podcast from Reasons to Believe. Reasons to Believe, integrating science and faith. And now, here's your host, Joe Aguirre. Welcome to Straight Thinking, where we examine critical issues in light of the historic Christian worldview. This is Average Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. Today, Ken concludes a four-part series on how apologetics impacts conversion. Ken has been focusing on the life of Augustine, and uh, we got right to the cusp of his actual conversion, Ken, on the last podcast, and I think people are raring to hear more about it and uh, then get to perhaps some of his impact since that conversion. Exactly. Uh, You know, we've been discussing uh, what I'm calling really a a case study that – Uh, Augustine's life and the apologetic factors that impact that life, uh, we might be able to look at these as kind of a model. Um, And and again, we we looked at uh, one, removing the philosophical objections, two, removing both theological and exegetical objections, but three, the example of of believers. um, Augustine encountered intellectual believers, and he encountered people of moral integrity, and uh, that really, really persuaded him in many respects for the existential reality of death. Uh, We're all doomed. We're all going to die. Life is very short. Something happens to us in death, either oblivion or immortality. Uh, That's a factor. And then finally, the, the final two, number five, confronting our sinful condition. Augustine was a great sinner. Uh, who became a great saint. And so that's encouragement for us. And then finally, the study of Scripture, the credible role that God's Word plays. Uh, Joe, I I argue, and I'm just taking it from the Apostle Paul, that faith uh, comes from hearing the Word, the message, the gospel about Jesus Christ. That's Romans 10, 17. And uh, God uses all of these apologetic factors as part of his grace. I don't think we should isolate one over the other. God's grace is deep. It's wide. It takes into account many things. It involves people. It involves circumstances. It involves the full person, our, our conscience, our reason. And uh, what we now talk about is uh, St. Augustine's uh, conversion. He had talked about... Uh, and this is his most famous line from the Confessions that, you know, uh, we're restless with you've made us for yourself. Our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. And uh, that, I think, is a, a very powerful thing about society. People are very restless. And if they're made for God, there's good reason uh, to, to be restless in soul or restless uh, in spirit. So let's talk a little bit about Augustine's conversion. Uh, I want to read a little bit uh, that he writes about it. Uh, It's in the summer of 386, and so uh, Augustine is 32 years old, and he's gone through a lot of period of trying to put all these things together, come to grips with his own own life, 
his inadequacy before God. Uh, and he says, uh, he says this, he says, I was asking myself these questions, weeping all the while with the most bitter sorrow in my heart, when all at once I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was a voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, uh, tole lege, tole lege, which is Latin for take up and read, take up and read. At this, I looked up thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which the children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the first passage of which my eyes should fall. Uh, his, uh, his eyes fell upon Dave, Romans thirteen, thirteen, and 14. <laughs> Uh, where the Apostle Paul writes, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies or, and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension or jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Oh, he turned right to that passage. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, I what think they call that uh, kind of, the, you know, where you, you open the Bible and you put yeah. your finger on it. There's a there's a term that's used somebody. Well, you Can't know, remember what it is. You know what's what's very interesting. There, there's a lot of interesting things about this. Uh, by the way, I should add that uh, Augustine's very close friend was also converted. Uh, again, Augustine had lots of friendships, lots of people in his life. His son also converted. Not uh, long after that, they were baptized on Easter uh, by Ambrose. And uh, after that period, he decided, I'm going to go back to my home in North Africa. I'm going to leave uh, Milan and uh, uh, start a, uh, a prayer community uh, where we can mm. devote our lives to Christ, to study, and to, and, and to prayer. Uh, there, there, there may have also been – Augustine may have had maybe some asthma, Dave, mm. because uh, – some have talked about, you know, North Africa, because it would be hot and, and, and dry, mm-hmm. it would be the right place Helpful. for him. Yeah. And, uh, of course, uh, he, he had become a celebrity. He was an intellectual celebrity. The church quickly found out that uh, he was now uh, a believer. And uh, the bishop came to him and said, uh, you need to be a priest. And then when the, when the bishop died, he became the bishop of Hippo, Hippo being that region there of, of North Africa. And, of course, went on to uh, write many books. Uh, there are 500 of his sermons, Dave, that you can mm-hmm. read. Uh, he wrote his sermons, uh, which has uh, long been a tradition in some of the uh, Christian uh, theological uh, denominations. Uh, f- wrote five million words, a hundred of them being – being books had uh, an impact on Christian history, like very few others. But I, I wanted to comment about this uh, the sing song voice. Mm. Um, what I think is very interesting is uh, you know some would say it doesn't seem very sophisticated. It seems kind of kind of like what uh, some goofy religious people do. I. I uh, when I was a young Christian, I, you know, I would want, Lord, what do you have for me today? And I would open up the Bible and I'd put my finger down, and it, and unfortunately for me, it said, uh, 
uh, Judas went and hung himself. Yeah. I said, well, that can't be the right <laughs> verse. Right. So I tried again, and the next verse was, what thou doest, do quickly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. That's a story that we, yeah, yeah. That we tell. But, you know, I was part of a charismatic community when I was uh, a young believer, and, you know, we would often – uh, kind of approach scripture like, Lord, do you have a word for me? Yeah. It, uh, what I think, though, is is very interesting as 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 part of this is that um, you know maybe this sing song voice maybe it was a supernatural mm-hmm. uh, thing, and I think you also see that when people come to Christianity, uh, sometimes they don't have all of their ducks in a row. Uh, I've met people who've told me that certain verses were instrumental in them coming to Christ, and I thought, I think they misunderstood that verse. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't saying Uh, what they thought it was. Yeah, I think they took it out of context. (laughs) So uh, this, of course, uh, is something that Augustine later writes about. I mean, he – many years later, so he's converted in 386 – he writes the the confessions in uh, 397 to 401. Uh, so a lot of people don't know about his struggle. They they kind of think of him as this very saintly figure, this this international Christian celebrity. And I think part of his motivation in in writing the confessions was uh, uh, to let people know that he was a sinner saved by grace. Uh, th- there's lots about the confession that I think are are really powerful. Up until that time, I mean, if you went into the local Barnes and Noble and uh, in Rome, there was no autobiography section. Hmm. Nobody ever wrote a spiritual autobiography. This is a whole new, the Confessions represents a whole new genre of literature. And the word confession really has a triple sense. Uh, Joe, in, in our churches, we talk about confession of sin. Well, that's part of the word confession. Another confession is the confession of a newfound faith. Testimony, in a sense. And, and a third one is the confession of the greatness of God. Mm. All, all of that. I mean, I mean, another feature of the confessions is it's like the Psalms. Uh, Augustine's just talking to God throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And so when you first read it, it's like, whoa. He's just having a conversation with God, which again, some of the, the Davidic psalms are, are like that, where the psalmist is, is, is talking to the Lord. You have a lot of uh, spiritual and psychological self-analysis. Augustine gets into discussion about why, what motivates him. He talks about when he was a young boy, he, they used to – him and a, a, his gang that he would hang out with, they would go and steal the figs from a, a neighbor – And he said, I had plenty of money. I wasn't hungry. I just did it for the Mm -hmm. thrill of it. And so he develops this kind of uh, psychological self-analysis. He cites scripture. He deals with philosophical and theological topics. And in fact, the end of the book, he deals with interpreting the book of Genesis because the context for one's life uh, is creation, and and we're on the stage of God's created history, uh, if you will, and and it, it's great devotional literature. Again, if I can come back to Mortimer Adler, uh, Adler uh, in his book How to Read a Book, uh, he and Van Doren, his co-author, says that the, that what makes a book great 
is you can never get to the end of it. You can never exhaust it. You might put it aside and come mm. back to it. It still challenges you. You pick it up another time. It challenges you in a way that it didn't before. Whereas most books, and in fact, Adler says 99% of books aren't worth reading twice. <laughs> and so uh, I think that The Confessions are one of those great books. I mean, it, it's not only a great book from a Christian point of view. Joe, it's a great book from a literary point of view. It's one of the classics. And what we have is, uh, in many ways, uh, the restless soul has, has found peace with God. And Augustine goes on to be this great theologian, this great inspirational individual. And I think he would argue vigorously that these apologetic factors were all – the grace of God working behind the scenes of his life, that, that you're saved by grace. You're, you're not saved by what you do. You're not even saved by saying yes, because the grace of God enables you to say yes. And so it's salvation solely by grace. And uh, Augustine will later fight a major theological battle with Pelagius and uh, he will write many other books, The City of God, which may be his, his greatest scholarly contribution. He writes a book on the Trinity. He writes another book on Christian doctrine. These are all not only Christian class, classics, but classics of Western civilization. And uh, I think that it is uh, – I think it's important to maybe consider this as uh, – as a possible study case where, where we, we look at the life of Augustine and we realize that, you know, um, the challenges that people have are, are quite similar. We, we usually have these issues that stand in the way, roadblocks, mm -hmm. Dave, as you, you've used the term. We have to get our mind around the faith. Faith and reason is, is a big part of it. But we have these, these, non-rational areas, not irrational. Mm -hmm. we, have to, we have to learn how to relate to other Christian people. Christianity has to be livable. Um, we, we have to be able to uh, uh, come to grips with the existential areas of life. Uh, it's not so, to me, it's amazing how many people won't look at Christianity because of bitterness. They're angry with someone. There's a blindness that comes into a person's heart when they're bitter against someone, maybe against God himself or the idea of God. Uh, you know, you'd think if they're an atheist, you know, they wouldn't bother about God anymore. That wouldn't be a, a category or a subject of – but they're often the most preoccupied with speaking ill against God or – cursing God or the person who isn't there, they're spending their life cursing or denying or or, or often the you know the the very angry nonbeliever looks at the members of the church and their hypocrisy but yeah. fails to see the hypocrisy in their own life. Their own life yeah. That uh, the church is the is the community of the forgiven. This is, uh, brings up an interesting, you know, you, you spoke of uh, him as being this great sinner who's become a great saint. Um, there must have been probably people in that day who were his detractors who would speak. I mean, today uh, you find people very uh, 
really struggling with the whole idea that a sinner, a mass murderer, for instance, can be forgiven and go to heaven. Uh, or, you know, that someone who's hurt them as badly as, as, as some person in their life could actually be. I, I just remember here uh, uh, maybe a few months ago now when um, Charles Colson died. Yes. And there were a bunch of articles about him. And there was only one out of maybe six that had anything positive to say. These were, of course, written by secular people, positive to say about him. All they could do is talk about what a, a terrible person he was, and then they would make some nasty remarks about he was supposedly, you know, con- he changed his mind and became a Christian and whatever that means. They tied him to Watergate. First, yeah, and, and yeah. didn't get much beyond that. That's right. They yeah. they couldn't seem to uh, come to the place of, of of that a person could actually repent and and have a change of heart. Yeah, that well, that's that's exactly right. I think that uh, you know, I, I we talked about uh, in a previous program, Dave, that. Uh, one of the things that, that drew me to you in listening to your talk was your kind of admitting your own mistakes, and I think the I think the reality is uh, that that oftentimes if we do come out and admit our mistakes, uh, somebody often said that you know particularly regarding politics, it's it's not usually what you do, it's the covering up that gets you. Yeah. I, I think that. I think if some of these politicians had come out, they could be forgiven. Mm-hmm. But of course, you're making the point that often, you know, we want to connect you to what you did wrong, right. and we won't allow you to to grow out of that. And to Colson, I think Colson's life was exponentially greater after his oh, Christian absolutely. experience. His real accomplishments came later. Well, I I, I think that what we see here. And uh, let me mention, uh, Joe, some of the theological accomplishments. Why do we consider Augustine the great theologian of the first thousand years of the church? Well, he hits on five major areas. One would be original sin, this developing the idea that human beings have derived their sin nature from Adam, which, of course, I think is another reminder of why it's so important to believe there was a historical Adam. Uh, two, the absolute necessity of grace. You can't save yourself. You're fallen. You've been taken captive by sin. Uh, grace is getting what you don't deserve and you could never earn. Three, sacramentalism. And now we begin to see the Catholic uh, Augustine, uh, not to say that Catholics, of course, don't believe in grace um, because they do. And uh, obviously they believe in original sin as well. But Augustine had a very developed view of the, sac- the nature of the sacraments. Four would be his view of the church, ecclesiastical authority. I mentioned earlier that some people have suggested that the Reformation was really kind of two of Augustine's points of emphasis squaring off against one another, the authority of the church versus his view of salvation by grace. And then five, Dave, divine election. Mm-hmm. I mean, one reason a lot of people don't like Augustine is he has this very strong view of predestination and That's election. Right. And so uh, there are people uh, – I mentioned Luther was very much influenced by Augustine, but so was Calvin. 
uh, the Reformed tradition. We kind of see ourselves associating with Augustine in this way. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are uh, Christians uh, in another tradition, uh, the Orthodox tradition, which is a branch of Christendom. They're quite critical of Augustine for these very reasons. So I see this model, Joe, and the reason I I thought it would be good to talk about it is – I think that this is something we can see, that uh, apologetics is a tool. We should see uh, apologetics as flowing from the grace of God, that apologetics are not an end in themselves, um, and that obviously when when we desire someone to move from unbelief to belief, from being outside of Christ to being in Christ, it is a supernatural work of God. And uh, apologetics is a noble profession. It's a noble task, uh, but it should be deeply connected to a biblical theology. And uh, as I've said previously, I think sometimes maybe those of us who see ourselves as professional apologists, maybe we should think uh, and keep in mind the the great need to tie it to a a sound biblical theology. Yeah. You know, I was thinking that um, as you've laid out these six apologetics-related factors that impacted Augustine's conversion and how you say that this makes for a good case study or model for us today, uh, I I can see that working out and let's say somebody identifying somebody in their life that is not a Christian, that they often have these objections, philosophical, theological, exegetical, that you can't get to, say, number five, confronting man's sinful condition or having them study Scripture because they'll just reject it outright mm-hmm. until they overcome some of these objections. And it seems like the example of a believer, perhaps the person asking, uh, I mean the, the person sharing information, could serve in that, that role. And sometimes it does take an experience of death or or some some bad thing that happened around some them. crisis. So you can kind of see this pattern, uh, mm-hmm. even you know if it's not like an official apologetics uh, treatise. It, it does seem like a good model to follow. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. And and again, I I go back to the confessions. Um, I'm I'm suspicious of Augustine. I think he had ulterior motives. I I think he wrote uh, candidly and truthfully about the events of his own life. But I think he saw his life in the backdrop of being fallen in Adam, Mm -hmm. that his life was unique in one sense, but totally typical in another sense. And so uh, he was smart enough, uh, like great writers are, to have this this bigger picture. And so when I read the confessions, I think, man, I I really – and maybe that's why I have a a strong attachment to St. Augustine. Because I, I, I see myself there. Uh, and I think now flipping it around, maybe the apologetic events that he writes about can also be a pattern that can help us. And uh, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes people talk negatively about foxhole Christianity. But, you know, uh, when you think you're going to die, you think differently. And when you face a crisis, you you think differently. But I I like your assessment, Joe. I think there is a way of moving down this list, and I think the more important things are lower in the list, but you probably can't get to them until you're able to at least say, 
Christianity is an intellectually viable faith. I don't know if it's completely true, but it is a live option. If it's not a living option, I'm not even going to go there. Mm-hmm. And so you make your way. And, of course, some of these are beyond the apologists. I mean, the apologists cannot get a person to reflect honestly about their own moral failures. That's something the Holy Spirit has got to do. And, of course, Scripture is alive and active. It is a, it's a powerful thing. Um, there's a couple other dangerous ideas I didn't mention in my book. One of them is Scripture. Scripture's dangerous. You got to be very careful Read about the reading Bible. the Bible. I think Richard Dawkins would agree with you. <laughs> Indeed, he would. We, we might have some common ground there. Someone had a little uh, thing sticker on their bumper that said, "Read the Bible; it'll scare the hell out of you." <laughs> well, uh, I mean, look at it. I mean, it, it it changed Augustine. One could argue it changed Luther, and it changed the world. There, there yeah. are historians who have said. The, the greatest change in the history of Europe was the Protestant Reformation. So what we see is that Scripture even impacts Christianity. I mean, and, I, and I'd like to also add, Joe, that we could look at it slightly differently. Sometimes when you've become a Christian, there are some of these issues that you're going to have to deal yeah, with. Because you're now thinking about these things. Yeah. Now they come up. Yeah, hmm. and it's like, well— how do I deal with theories of evolution? Mm-hmm. How do I deal with non-Christian religions? What do I do with my own failure in the Christian life, my own struggle to to deal with it? What about my bitterness at being treated badly in the church? And so working your way from the other side mm-hmm. uh, can be ve- a very important element. I, yeah. This is where I kind of find it helpful to think in terms of or make the distinction between regeneration and conversion. I think a person can experience new birth, but they're not very converted. They haven't really dealt with a lot of the issues, especially maybe certain kinds of sin in their life. And it's after that that they're now motivated, of course, to listen to the preacher or listen to the to the friend who's uh, you know calling or 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 circumstances that's saying, "Hey, your life needs to change. You know, there needs to be some conversion here in your thinking. Uh, but you've already experienced this new life. Well, and, and of course, the, the issue that you and I bat around back and right. forth. I mean, Joe, there is this, this question, and, and it is a, a very critical question. Um, do you believe and then are born again? Or are you born again and then believe? Does faith precede regeneration, the new birth, Mm -hmm. or does the new birth precede belief? And the answer to that will place you in (laughs) theological categories. (laughs) But I think in either case, whatever you choose to believe, conversion is kind of a process where it could occur before you're born again in the sense that you're – you're going through experiences that are changing your mind about, let's say in the case of, of Augustine, it changed his mind about, say, uh, the value of hedonism in, in bringing right. any satisfaction in his life. Well, that's kind of a, a conversion experience in the sense that he's changing his mind about a lot of these things that the world says, hey, this is where you find life. But he hadn't yet come to the point of being regenerate. 
And then there were probably a lot of things after he became a Christian that began to change in his mind as well as he began to study Scripture and be I, I convicted. I think that's right. And, I, I think for years, for several years, he was changing. Yes. His views of, of hedonism had changed. He had worked through Manichaean challenges. He had begun to see, I think probably for a couple of years, Christianity had become a live option. But he had not yet embraced That's right. Christianity. And so there was this, this process. And, and then year, years after his faith, um, uh, Augustine would not be in a room alone with a woman. Um, Recognizing that he uh, had some he had these issues b- beforehand and wanted to be very careful about uh, all of these kinds mm-hmm. of, of of issues, I, I wonder if I could uh, read a a little bit of a lengthy quote here, Joe. It's from the Oxford History of Western Philosophy. It it talks about the influence of of Saint Augustine, and this is not a Christian book. This is a uh, I think Anthony Kenny is the editor of the Oxford History of Western Philosophy. Kenny is a philosopher of religion, but I, I, I think he would classify himself as a skeptic. But uh, Kenny is a very bright and sharp and articulate and I think a very fair philosopher, even though he uh, would, not be, uh, would not call himself a Christian. He says this, he says, quote, it is arguable that Augustine is the most influential philosopher who has ever lived. His authority has been felt much more broadly and for a much longer time than Aristotle's, whose role in the Middle Ages was comparatively minor until rather late. As for Plato, for a long time, much of his influence was felt mainly through the writings of Augustine. For more than a millennium after his death, Augustine was an authority who simply had to be accommodated. He shaped medieval thought as no one else did. Moreover, his influence did not end in the Middle Ages. Throughout the Reformation, appeals to Augustine's authority were commonplace on all sides. His theory of illumination lives on in Malbrook and in Descartes' Light of Nature. Uh, His approach to the problem of evil and to human free will is still widely held today. His force was and is still felt not just in philosophy, but also in theology, popular religion, and political thought, for example, in the theory of, of the just war. You know, I, uh, I would say this, um, whether you agree with Augustine or not, and there are Christians who like him, and there are Christians who are critical of him, um, regardless of whether you come down and agree with some of his theological conclusions, I think there's something here in terms of a model that uh, there are these apologetic type issues that have to be dealt with and they and they seem to, to be pretty typical about the, the way most people come to faith and, and if it's and if it's not, some of these issues still come up post Christian mm-hmm. where uh, you know apologetics became incredibly important to me almost immediately after talking with Jehovah's Witness I knew I needed some study mm-hmm. you know and uh, so the issue of other religions the issue of science these apologetic issues I think are are critical and and again uh, I make uh, I you know part of my uh, part of my emphasis here I think Christians should 
delve into theology, I think that a lot of contemporary Christians don't know much about the history of their faith. And whether you come to conclusions that are different than, than Augustine, there's a lot we can learn not only from him, but, but about our own life. And, and again, I think these are, these are not things that are true only of Augustine. They're so often true of our lives and, and the lives of people we care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, a question that might come up from a skeptic, I don't know that they would put it this way, but I just thought, uh, thought of the question. They might say something along the lines of Augustine converted at a time when there wasn't as much to object to about Christianity. That is, if Augustine were alive today, maybe he wouldn't have converted. We have so much scientific evidence for evolution, they would argue. There's 2,000 years of bloodshed at the doorstep of the church, hypocrisy, things like that. And maybe weren't as big of a deal back then because the faith was relatively new. Could they argue along those lines that Augustine wouldn't have converted to Christianity, being a smart philosopher after all? Well, I, I, I think you could probably – you know, I, I I don't think it's unreasonable to maybe make a case that a lot of time has passed from, you know, the third and fourth century. Um, and I think you could say that there are things now that we have to come to grips with, we have to grapple with that maybe Augustine uh, didn't. There certainly wasn't a, a, a an enterprise like modern science during his time. But I think that that criticism is short-sighted. I think it's actually weak, and I'm, I'm going to tell you why. Augustine lived at a time in which the Greco-Roman world was all around him. Uh, Plato and Aristotle were these authorities who you simply had to come to grips with. And uh, so there was a lot of conflict. I mean, it is true that by – by Augustine's time, the church is making progress, and the church has now become the official religion of the empire, and and it is starting to to have significant influence. But that doesn't mean that the Greco-Roman philosophies and and ideas are not very great. Some of the Greeks believed in evolution. Obviously, there was nothing like Darwinism during that time. But um, you know, again, if I can quote somebody like Mortimer Adler, Adler. Adler would often say that, you know, there's nothing in the modern world that you can't find in the ancient world, at least in some, you know, early stage. So I actually think that Augustine, coming from the background that he did, being steeped in Greco-Roman philosophy, that he had a lot of obstacles and he had a lot of options that he had to to sort through. So, uh, you know, I'm willing to grant a, a little bit of legitimacy to that criticism, but I think they need to think deeper about the world in which Augustine lived. It well, was it was a very pagan world. The fact that Augustine is still read today with great interest has insights uh, that we find very helpful. Tells us that. He had a lot of understanding that uh, would have helped him and would have kept him in this day as well as it did then. I mean, he still has answers, right? It's still relevant. It's still his 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 uh, his understanding and his wisdom is uh, above the ages, as it were. It's kind of like Shakespeare, you know. Uh, Shakespeare spoke in such a way that uh, it's very relevant to today's. 
situations and circumstances. In, in fact, Dave, um, let me tell you, that's, that's exactly the case. Many of uh, our responses to the problem of evil come from Augustine. Mm-hmm. Um, he, has, he contributes to the ontological argument. That the idea of God, there is a proof for God even in the, even in the thought of God, this doctrine of ex, ex, creation ex nihilo. So uh, these enduring Augustinian ideas and of mm-hmm. course he would never take credit for them. He would say, I'm just deriving mm-hmm. these ideas and maybe developing, drawing implications of them, pushing them a little further down the road than, than he had them. But I think uh, – I think the interesting thing is that much of the Christian apologetic uh, approach to our faith is things that we are quite uh, happy to to give Augustine a lot of credit for. Would you say we might even benefit if we read a little bit more about the debate uh, that he had with Pelagius, for example? I I do. I I mean, I'll be very candid. I, I I think the time in which we live in I, I'm not sure at times whether Christians understand what it means to be saved by grace. And, I, and I'm not trying to be too critical of them because I think there's something about human nature, fallen human nature, that always wants to get in the way of salvation mm-hmm. by grace, to take credit for it. And, and if it's not Pelagianism, it's semi-Pelagianism. And, uh, you know, so many of these issues are quite relevant Things he wrote about the Trinity, all of these things I think are mm-hmm. are very relevant. And and again, I see these great Christian thinkers as as allies, as mentors, as people I can learn from. I I can I can look to them and say, well, how did they deal with these things, and how did they cope with these these we kind of things? I mean, if you're a Protestant and you're a little uncomfortable calling people. You know, church fathers. Well, Calvin was a father of the faith. Luther was a father of the faith. Uh, you know, uh, Cranmer was a father of the faith. Th- these are these are people who I think lived during challenging, difficult times, faced sometimes threat of martyrdom, and uh, so I. I uh, I, I'm very straightforward. I, I think church history has much to teach us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before uh, we uh, finish, I would like to just call attention to another uh, person, more modern person, who uh, in some ways parallels uh, the story of Augustine that we're telling here, and that's C.S. Lewis. Yes, yes. Uh, he's written an autobiography uh, called Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. He tells uh, kind of uh, little bits and pieces about his life and things that influenced him and the struggle he had with uh, philosophical issues. He was about the same age as Augustine when he became a Christian in his early 30s. Um, there were uh, obviously a lot of similarities. Had Christian influence early on and then yes. wa- walked away walked from it? Walked away from it, you know, and... Uh, had a lot of uh, uh, intellectual training, became a, an atheist, really, rejected his Christian upbringing. But then uh, through some circumstances, which he relates in the book, uh, came sort of was challenged. Okay, you're so good. Why don't you uh, keep the law? If you think this law is just, uh, you know, something that anybody could keep, uh, nothing special about it. And so for a year he tried to keep the law, and he couldn't do it. 
this was when he was honest enough to acknowledge that maybe outwardly it looked like he was keeping it, but inwardly he couldn't. And then uh, then he, he kind of tells about how he, he <clears throat> came to the point of acknowledging in great fear that maybe there was a God in heaven who was going to hold him accountable for his life. And so he was kind of terrorized by this whole thing. And it wasn't until a, a later time that he actually came to recognize that the, the one who was the source of uh, earlier experiences of joy was uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he came finally to faith. But it's a, it's a very interesting story. And, of course, he's also a writer and an apologist. He's not a theologian in the same sense that Augustine was, but... Uh, he sure has, sure has a lot of insight into yeah, and the Christian I, faith. And, and, you know, Dave, guys like you and I, we look at August, uh, we look at Lewis, uh, he's, a, he's a father figure. Yep. He's a father in the faith. Definitely. Joe, um, uh, I'm sometimes uh, uh, criticized for being too pro-Augustine. Did Augustine get everything right? No, he's criticized. Uh, let me mention three areas in which he is criticized. Um, some people would, would argue, for example, that Augustine is largely a rhetorician. He's not technically a, a philosopher, and so sometimes his philosophical writings lack a, what has been called a precise systematic argumentation. Um, he's not as systematic as Thomas, not as systematic as Calvin. So uh, when you read through Augustine, sometimes his early ideas, he changes his mind later in life. Uh, I found it really interesting. Pope Benedict XVI, the present pope, said that he preferred Augustine over Thomas Aquinas. And I, I was like, wow. But he said the reason was there was this deep personableness about mm-hmm. Augustine and that things related to his life. He said, I love Thomas, but with Augustine, it, it flows out of his life, life and, life and faith. Well, some people would say Augustine isn't careful enough. He's not systematic mm-hmm. enough. Um, Michael Horton said to me, Michael Horton is a, a theologian in the Reformed tradition, a professor at, at Westminster Seminary here in San Diego in, in Escondido. Uh, Horton said to me, Augustine didn't go far enough. So his Protestant critique was that Augustine you know, should have pushed it further. Um, another criticism is uh, that Augustine kind of used political power in the Donatist controversy, that he was, some say he was a little heavy-handed politically. And then I think uh, another area is that some Christians, particularly those in the East, in the Orthodox tradition, they don't like his views of original sin. They think that's exaggerated, and they think that his views of election and predestination led to terrible things like Calvinism. So you do have people who are critical of him, and uh, you can criticize some of some of his ideas and some of his approaches. Did he not write something later called uh, retractions? Well, now let <laughs> let me end on a what I think is a really powerful note, if I can. Uh, I just think whatever mistakes Augustine made, the fact that his last book of his life was called Retractions, and he said, you know, I. I have a a big influence on people, and I feel like I have made mistakes in my life. I I think I viewed things wrongly, and and at the end of his life, he wrote a book trying to correct 
the the admit and to try to correct the mistakes that he made. Was that his biggest mistake? Writing and, that book. Some people would say <laughs> that is your real mistake. I, I would say I, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure there's anything better than that. I mean, I mean, I I think you see the humility of Augustine. He uh, he didn't need to write a book like that. He didn't have to. But he he was conveying that he loved the truth. And, uh, you know, um, we talk about people being wishy-washy, you know, as this presidential candidate, does he really hold this or is he, you know, is he flip-flopping? Sometimes people do change their minds. And it's not a flip-flop. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they, they've come to a different assessment. And so um, how many modern-day people, theologian or otherwise, do you know who would write a book called Retractions? <laughs> What about you, Ken? Are you going to write one of those? Well, I, I may have to. I may have to. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, fascinating stuff. Thank you for taking us down this uh, road through history to take a look in detail at the life of Augustine serving as a model for Christian apologetics. Um, you mentioned some of his works in this podcast and past podcasts. The book Confessions, that was his autobiography. Anything else you want to mention? Yes, let me, mention, let me mention a couple books that, again, are not just uh, uh, classics of, of Christianity but are literary classics. Of course, The Confessions, written 397 to 401 A.D., The City of God, written 412 to 426. Uh, we should also mention, however uh, – on Christian Doctrine and On the Trinity. Those are uh, – I would start with the confessions. Uh, the City of God is 1,500 pages long. <laughs> this, the uh, uh, On the Trinity is very challenging and takes uh, a lot of effort to get through it. On Christian Doctrine is, is, is not quite as difficult. But I would start with the confessions and uh, – I, I would also like to recommend the articles that I wrote here for RTB entitled Augustine of Hippo, uh, From Pagan to Cultist to Skeptic to Christian Sage. So there's two parts that look at his life before he was a Christian and after. And um, uh, I think those would help help you a long way in getting a feel for Augustine and his ideas. All right. Sounds great. Of course, you can find those articles here on our website. If you just type in Augustine of Hippo, uh, you'll, you'll get right to those articles. Okay, well, thank you for that, Ken. We want to remind uh, listeners that Ken also writes a blog, and that is reflectionsbyken.wordpress.com. And if you don't have Ken's latest book, Seven Truths That Change the World, be sure and pick up a copy of that, available here at reasons.org as well. This is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the historic Christian faith involves knowledge and is compatible with reason. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. This podcast is made possible through the generous gifts of the Friends of Reasons to Believe. For more information on how you can support this podcast, visit our website at reasons.org slash donate.